Hello, welcome back to BU Podcast. This is your host, Jill Herman. And welcome for the first time if someone referred you to this show. I'm so happy you're here with us. And I hope that, well, I know that this episode is really, really, really going to touch your heart and it's going to expand you and be a total blessing to you. If you decide to also listen to other episodes, I hope that you take whatever you get and you pay it forward to others. I hope you text the episodes to friends, you share it with others. We're doing some really beautiful work here and we're really, really proud of this content and we're happy that you're here with us and a part of our community. So this conversation is very special to me. I have wanted to have this conversation for quite some time. You've heard me say, if you're someone who's been listening for quite some time, that that I really do follow my internal compass and I gen- generally listen to that and don't stray from that. And it doesn't need to make sense why I'm drawn to something. I either am or I'm not. And Samson is someone I was drawn to even through, you know, a platform like Instagram where you really don't know who the person is, but energetically I could feel it. And what I sensed in him was that he was genuine. You know, in the sea of social media, there's a lot of beauty, first of all, and a lot of amazing teachers, a lot of great content, a lot of really good people. And there's a lot of showboating. There is a lot of preaching. There are a lot of self-proclaimed healers. And I immediately knew that Samson, he goes by Samson Strength on Instagram, was the opposite of that, that he was real, that he was genuine, that he didn't need to be popular or have a blue check mark, that he didn't live by the rules and standards that are in that bizarre world of social media. And I could feel that he was sharing truth and that he was pointing people toward their own truth and to who they really, really are at their core. And I loved it. And then after that, it was echoed by people I really admire. He was recommended by people I love, trust, and admire. His content was shared by people I love, trust, and admire. And so I had even more respect for him. So I've been following him for about three years now, maybe over three years. And maybe it's been four, I don't remember. And I wanted to have him on this show. And, and you know, as life shows us over and over again, that wasn't the time it was meant to happen. And this was, and it was such a beautiful, beautiful conversation that we had. And as I expected, he was that beautiful, grounded, I would say like soft, welcoming strength. And I'm really happy to bring this to you. So in keeping with who he is and how he is in this world, he sent me a really brief bio. It could have been pages long. And I just love that that's how he shows up in the world. He doesn't need to say a whole lot about himself. I'm going to tell you that he's worth checking out. He's worth following. He's worth learning from. And in this conversation, we talk about so much more than just the breath. We talk about spirituality and about life. And it's really great. So, Samson Odusoya is a husband and father first. He is also a multidisciplinary guide and a spiritual catalyst. His mission is to assist people in experiencing the truth of who they are. This is a beautiful way for us to start to reflect back on this past year of 2023, to step into our winter and close out the year before we move into 2024. 
So I share this conversation with Samson with so much love. You are going to get a lot out of this. There is nothing more inspiring than a woman being unapologetically herself. The answers are all in your heart. She's waiting, she's waiting, she's waiting for you to set her free. Welcome to Be You Podcast. I'm Jill Herman and I am so glad you're here. I was broke, insecure, and craved approval. But with grit, hustle, and sacrifice, I still built a successful multi-million dollar business. 10 years in, burnout, I slowed down and looked inward. In that silence, I discovered that the same level of success could have come to me with much less effort and so much more joy. That's when I threw out the expectations of the world and chose to unbecome every single thing I thought I was supposed to be. And the real me was uncaged. It was far from easy. And in this podcast, I'll offer my entire journey as a roadmap so that if you're ready, you can finally be you. Okay, well, we're finally sitting down together after having conversations back and forth for, I don't know, probably a year. Yeah. And obviously now is the perfect time because it worked out. So I'm grateful that you're here. I'm really appreciative. I'm really excited to have you here. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I know people say this to you because you mentioned in one of your Instagram lives that people say this to you, that you're very grounded and you are. And I've said this to you in comments before that you see, look at how there's like emotion coming up. You can see on video now that I have emotion coming up and I'm, I don't need to give you a compliment. I'm not saying this to compliment you. I just want you to hear me say like the effect you have on people. We've never met. We've only messaged through Instagram. We have friends in common who are dear people. It's not like we just know some random person, but you have one, you've obviously done a lot of work, but you have such a gift, Samson, that you are not just grounding, but you feel very, very, very safe. I would like to actually talk about that. Like is some of that maybe because of the work you've done? Probably. I think some of it is a gift that you have. I would love to know like when did you become aware of this gift? But to not know each other and have you be a male and me just feel like I just want to tell you everything and I feel completely safe with you. And I'm like, you know, you you just have a, and, and for that to come through a phone. Yeah. Think about that. Like I've never met you in person, but it's come through a phone. And I described you that way to your friend, Angie Lee. She's a friend of mine. And she's like, that's exactly how I would describe him. So let's start there. Where do you think that comes from? Firstly, thank you so much. I'm getting better at just being able to acknowledge how people see me without resisting or deflecting. So I appreciate that. And to answer your question, I feel it's a a combination of many different things. Sure, it can be, you know, something that I have as a gift. You know, as we all have gifts that God, you know, has instilled in us. The first thing that came forward, I don't even think I've ever been asked this question in this way. I think it's one I know. It's been the years of work that I've done, but it's not just the work itself. It's it's the type of work in relation to complete self-acceptance. I remember being eight years young, and this is when I knew, like, I knew something was percolating in at least when we're younger, we're more closer to the purity of our hearts and our essence before, you know, we give it away or 
we hold it inside. I would watch people. I remember I would just sit and just be so interested and curious about human beings. I think at that age, like now looking back, obviously that was a thread or that was a seed or that was a part of me that knew I was going to work with people in that regard. I, I was so passionate about human behavior, human psychology. I just wanted to know like, what was going on inside of people. So I would watch people kind of wondering, yeah, this person has a specific look and you know their face looks a certain way, but what is actually happening in their mind? What are they holding in their heart? And I share that because for me, my journey has been one where I had to learn how to love and accept myself. A lot of self-loathing, a lot of self-doubt, still working through elements of self-doubt, but the work on choosing to acknowledge what is known as our darkness. This is the unconscious uh, or simply put the parts of myself that I rejected and bringing that into the light and bringing love to those parts is what is allowing me to be in a space where judgment is not the first thing I do. And I feel it's because I've already been through the crevices of every part of my hell thus far that I know if someone is in pain or in their hell, who am I to judge them when I've gone through the same thing or I have the same thing? So being able to see myself translates into being able to see somebody else. And, you know, I think this is also supporting me in just being able to look through the person, not what's in front of me, not the ego itself, but like through the person. And I have an understanding that and this is what helps me as well. And we were just talking about, you know, our kids. I look at my daughter and she's the perfect reminder of how we're all born. Innocent, full of God. When I say full, this is before we start to compartmentalize parts of us, but full of God. Enjoy natural state of well-being, pure and whole. We're born that way. And then somewhere along the line, you know, either gets beaten out of us, abuse out of us, sanitize out of us, taken from us, or we either give it away. So for me, I have in the back of my mind and my heart that whatever is in front of me that would cause me to want to judge someone is just a shell to cover. And even though sometimes I fall for it because I'm human, sometimes I do fall inside of judging very quickly. I catch myself and go right back to that thought of seeing like this person Right, This person standing in front of me is a soul just like I am, who's just in this human experience doing the best that they can. And who am I to minimize them or pedestalize them when I probably experience in my way what they've experienced? So there's there's no other place than to be heart to heart. That's that I feel if, if I could answer your question, that'd be the end. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. So. What that brings up for me is two things. One, I want to talk about like, what did you do (laughs) when you say you did that work? But before we get to that, I want to say that besides you not coming from a place of judgment, I think there's something even deeper than that. Because if you're not coming from a place of judgment, I still may not feel fully safe with you. I just might feel that I can be myself. So I think let's do talk about what you did, because when you said you went in sort of like the 
I'll, I'll use my word, like the pits of every crevice of your darkness and put love there. That's what I feel. I feel like a depth with you. There's like this, it's not you're grounded and you're, there's depth. And I feel like you can hold me. You can hold anything. It feels that way. There aren't very many people I've met that I feel that way, feel that way with someone you know, my friend Steph, my former coach. I feel that way with you. So I do think a, a human has to be willing to put themselves through and dig through and, and face off with a lot to empty yourself enough to be able to give that. Beautifully put. And I would say that's accurate thus far. And I, and I feel it's an ongoing journey of perpetual renewal that matches nature where we're met at multiple times in our lives, depending on how obedient we are to the call within us, where we're going to have to deconstruct and shed. And that calls for literally going into the darkness and facing off and accepting and holding and shedding and being with and letting go of these parts that have had their time. So there are multiple moments, but to answer the question, so there's there's a lot of quote-unquote work. And it's so funny because it's just thrown around a lot. And uh, I have a, you call it, I'm one that doesn't like to get boxed into a certain label. And I get it. There's, there's maybe something there that I'm not, I'm not seeing. But yes, just for, I think, for understanding for those who are listening, work. So a little context and backstory. Where I was at, from what I can recall, was this very shy and timid kid growing up in an environment, in a household that was loving. I'm I'm not even going to take that away. There was love there. Like I had what I needed as far as the basic needs. But there was an entirely other side that forced me to internalize certain beliefs about myself that were rooted in not feeling enough, not feeling worthy, ultimately not feeling like I was meant to be here. Even a quick story. So I was born Samson, Albert Oluwashev, and Udusanya. There's a lot more names in there, just being Nigerian. And for 26 years of my life, I went by my middle name, Albert. It's all on my school records. It's in my yearbook that I just looked at a few months ago. It was on my school ID. So for the most part, I knew myself as Albert. And then I went to a seminar probably eight years ago, if I can recall, where something was coming up that, like, I know this is your name, but is this your name? So I asked my mom, and I already had a version of this story that I knew, but obviously being prompted from this from the seminar, I was forced to kind of going with a different listening. So my mom shared a story with me from when I was a year and a half old. And I was born in the church, but the church that we went to, I wouldn't consider it orthodox. I wouldn't consider it like your normal Baptist, Pentecostal, Catholic. I wouldn't consider it. There, there was something special to it. And I'm even like looking back, appreciating it now based on where I'm at, what, what I believe and what I know now about myself where there was, there was spiritual flexibility. So when they name a child, there's a naming ceremony that's done where in the middle of the congregation, there is a prophet, right? What we would call a psychic assigned to the child that would meditate on the child and receive or be channeled a message for the child. 
What would also be channeled is the name of the child. This is done for every child that is born to that congregation. Same thing was done for me. Samson was given to me. And I'm sharing this because to also give context based on like the understanding and the, the cultural, traditional, and also belief system we have. We we're very, very spiritual, right? And at the same time, that was coupled with, call it massive superstition. So I was a year and a half. And my mom shared the story with me that my dad just got done drinking out of this crystal wine glass. And you remember back in the day when everyone used to collect China, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, the gla- the, the actual crystal glasses, my dad was, got done drinking out of it. And she said, I grabbed the crystal wine glass and I put my hand, my little hand in it. I didn't drop it. I didn't throw it. I put my hand in it. And she said, it shattered. So... We agree. We have some parallel perspectives on this type of work. She said the glass shattered. So that was the first thing. She was like, okay, this is very interesting. She said, another story is I didn't see her for a few months. And then when I saw her, I was still breastfeeding. I think I was like nine months. I came and I literally grabbed my hand. I ripped the buttons off of her shirt so I can be breastfed. But that's another time. And then she would say, every time they call me Samson, I'd be hyper. And she was sharing this story and I asked her, I was like, so what were you saying about? She was like, well, Samson, like your power was too much for us to handle. So at a year and a half old, I internalized that I was too much. So that's where the dimming of my own power began, where I started to hide, if you will, at least in this lifetime. So all of that, is what carried me into being interested and curious about myself. When I was 18, one of my favorite quotes or sayings that is still a guiding principle for me is, know thyself so that you may know God. And that was what was just helping me, supporting me in being curious about who I was. This took me down a path of reading certain books, doing research in certain areas, leaving the church in that way just because of what I saw politically and just common sense. It didn't make sense for what was going on. So that for me was that redirected me to go search for my own truth and my own relationship and connection with God. And through that, I was introduced to personal development and I began working on myself in that regard, mindset wise, really delving deep into spirituality. And over time, I would notice there wouldn't be a sustainable carryover where I would try to shift my habits or behaviors and they would stick. There would always be a point where I hit a limit. And then, you know, people call it self-sabotage. I call it just my identity regulating itself, right? I would hit a limit and then I would crash. I did that so much that it became frustrating why I couldn't grow or shift or move in the direction that I wanted to go in. And then this was nine years ago, I get invited to a breathwork session by a really close friend whose brother-in-law was leading it. We were in California at the time, very curious, very open, very curious about my own growth and own journey. I'd been working with them as far as coaching. So they knew me on that level to have invited me to something like that. As you know, breathwork and its power and its beauty 
and it's and it's the benefits of it for me that night was i would say a reintroduction to a relate to building a relationship with my emotions that i didn't know i had to build right the visions that i saw that's a whole different story for me what was what really weighed on me what really stuck with me were the tears that i cried and growing up in a household where you do cry and you're told, shut up or I'm going to give you something to cry about. Right? Like my, my tears were a threat. And, you know, this is something I can always say. Like tears were easy for me. But they weren't easy to be cried because I thought they were rejected. So I can access the feeling. I can access the watering of the eye. I can access the emotion that wants to express itself through tears, but it was always met with rejection. So that night during that session, it was just this release. And I felt so clear. I felt so grounded. There was also new information and data for me to know that all the work I've been doing thus far was only working on one level. There was a much deeper level that I didn't know that I had to meet. And up until then, the seminars I attended, where the work had to be done around my parents, my mother and my father, like, sure, that was all being done. But again, that was only shifting or trying to shift a belief or a thought form that over time wasn't sustainable. It wouldn't stick. I'd still be pissed off when I'd be talking to my father. Or I'd still feel triggered when I'd be talking to my mom. So I'm like, there's still something there. Mm Mm-hmm. On this podcast, we call that whipped cream on shit. (laughs) (laughs) I've talked about that a lot because we have the same story. I think probably anyone who finds this work has the same story. I was doing mindset work. I was teaching mindset work. I was gathering women on Zoom and you want to do this 60 day, whatever. And I was good at it and it helped me. And it was still whipped cream on shit. I still had all that stuff underneath. Yep. And what you alluded to earlier, there's been this depth that I've known that I had. But again, that was rejected. In our world, it's getting better today. Like depth is is feared. It's more easier to be shallow and talk about things on the surface than it is to swim underwater. So I would I noticed too that you know I'd hear things like it's not that deep. I would hear that, that all the time. So that would affect the trust in my ability to go beneath the surface, to explore deeply, to play in the depths of my own, not just shadows, but let's say another topic I would be researching, right? So that night now introduced me to a different level of work that I knew that I had to commit to. So I practice breath on a daily basis, feel the effects of that, completely improve my life with a daily breath practice. And then New Year of 2015, going into the New Year of 2015, we were still in LA. We attended Agape with Michael Bernard Beckwith, who's the, are you familiar with him? Mm -mm. Yeah. He was one of the, he wasn't an author, but he was one of the contributors to The Secret. He's been in the spiritual game for, I mean, over 30 years. Uh, Yeah, he's like a father to, to a lot of us. You definitely get to know him and look him up. So he has a spiritual, you don't want to, I don't want to call it a church, but let's just call it that for the sake of simplicity purposes in LA. We go every Sunday and then they're holding a um, 10 day silent meditation retreat 
almost like a Vipassana. So my, my wife and I were like, okay, she was my, she was my girlfriend, not my wife yet. We're going to go. So we went and closing that 10 day, which was powerful. I feel like that was kind of easy for me because it's easy for me to reflect and meditate. It wasn't an easy period to be meditating for eight to 10 hours every day, but the act of going within was easy. Closing the ceremony, he had a friend who was a third generation Quechuan Incan shaman from Peru come. Closing ceremony. So there were drums present. There were prayers present. There were just a whole ordeal present. And when I start to see this be set up, it triggered a memory of when I used to attend church as a kid. Every Sunday, no shoes, no shoes allowed in the church. We'd burn candles. We'd do incense. There was a washing of the feet every end of the month. Right? There, there were these practices that immediately came back. And what Sean would go around and play his drum on everybody while he was chanting and while he was praying. And he got to me and it felt like he was on me for like an hour. It was only a few minutes, but it felt like an hour. And something about him drumming, I felt woke up something deep within me. Something beyond this life itself. Something deep in my lineage that I felt like I was the only one in my family that was appointed to start to walk in. So that was another seed planted. We left there. He was in town for a few more weeks because I was like, okay, I got to work with this guy. So I went to go do a personal session with him and almost similar thing. We're talking. He starts to chant. He does this prayer slash ritual with me. He was asking me questions as he was chanting. And then he asked me this question that only (laughs) I felt like God would know. It was in relation to my mother. He says, when's the last time you've seen your mother physically? And I started bawling because my mom had been deported. She's been deported since 2005. So it's been 18 years plus since we've seen my mom. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I started bawling and he's like, hermano, said, what you're missing currently right now is like, you need your, you need your mother's touch. You need your mother's hug. Again, this is beneath and beyond the mental work that I was, mental gymnastics that I was trying to play around all the feelings and all the resentment and all the pain I had in relation to my mother. He's like, you need physical touch with your mother. Couldn't make that happen. Right. But he was coming back into town. So I get an email that he's coming back. And he's holding a Wachuma ceremony. For those who are unfamiliar with Wachuma, this is San Pedro. This is masculine. It's a, it's a psychoactive cactus. Right? So now this is plant medicine. This will be my first ever, ever sit. And this is my introduction to the plant medicine world. For those who are familiar or not familiar, this is also considered the grandfather energy of medicine. It's a very long day. It's heart opening and it's very grounding. And tell me what it's called again, Samson. Uh, Wachuma. That's the indigenous name for it, but it's called San Pedro. San Pedro. Mm-hmm. I think I might know someone who's done that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You said it's from the cactus. So there's, there's, there's a reason behind why it's called that as well. So, you know, something in me was like, fuck yes. 
And one, I already experienced this gentleman twice who he held this very deep, grounded grandfather energy that was like, I need that in my life. So I'm willing to meet up with him as many times. So he came back. It's him, his wife, and his daughter that do this. We're there. And I'm just kind of cutting through the story now. I drink the medicine and I'm waiting. And immediately I noticed resistance in the pit of my stomach. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. We were told that we may experience resistance. So I go up to him. Look, like, Wachan, I am, I'm experiencing a lot of resistance. He said, okay. Uh, then he asked me, he's like, uh, Hermano, do you, do you smoke cannabis, marijuana? I said, no. But if you feel it's going to help, sure. (laughs) (laughs) So he calls me over to the corner and there's this patch of grass. He says, kneel down. He lights the cannabis. I take two puffs. And I I don't really have a good relationship with cannabis. So this is not something that I do in the regular, but I was willing to listen to him. So take two puffs. And then he tells me, lay on the ground and roll around. Immediately, my mind is like, what do you mean? <laughs> I have resistance in my stomach. Like, okay. So I start rolling, Jill. And I roll. And all I hear is roll, roll. And then it hits. All of a sudden, this wave, deep wave of sorrow mm. came through. And I was wailing in tears. I was weeping. And all you hear is him in the background while he's chanting and praying as I'm letting this out. He said, give it back to her. She wants it. Give it back to earth. Give it back to mother earth. And I'm just crying. and I'm crying and I'm crying. What made it more difficult is I was very cognizant and present of my mind and ego not being able to do anything because I was stuck on the ground. I couldn't move my body. It was like the medicine did exactly what it needed to because like I'm I'm a pretty strong person and at that point like I was also very good at resisting things. So it had to work me in such a way to break me down so I could not get in the way of these tears. And they just kept coming and they just kept coming. And this is one of the most powerful lessons that I learned. While I was crying, there were people sitting around the fire, maybe 20 feet from me. And there's everybody else in their own experience. My ego immediately started to freak out. I'm like, and this is where these thoughts came. Oh, shit. They're watching me cry like a little baby. I can't do anything about it. They probably think I'm, a, I'm weak. Or like these, these thoughts just coming. And I realized in that moment that... That was, again, that was an identity that was very much invested in what people saw and how they saw me. I could not protect the mask that I was wearing. I couldn't protect this calm persona that I've been carrying most of my life because I've been the one for my family in that way. I've been the one for other people that people would come to and just ask for advice or share it. And I just be calm. In that moment, I couldn't do that. So that was another or deeper introduction to something else within me that I didn't even know I need to process and I need to feel. 
right? That was very visceral, that was very somatic. And then followed by that, I think once I was light, the visions came and there were crazy visions that came. And then obviously in between that, I'm still doing a lot more to integrate what that was. For me, I feel like when you give the body the space to process and let go, now there's energy available to focus on something else because all my energy isn't occupied resisting or holding or tightening or tensing or being wound up. Like I'm, I'm now free to, to follow through on certain things, but it still took work to be able to now understand that there's this person, there's this man that I know I could be versus the man that I've been. That was work. And then about a year and a half later was my first introduction and sit with um, grandmother ayahuasca. And that was the biggest one for me. I'm going to spare all the details about that, but that first night was what I felt like. It, it was a massive turning point for me. When I talk about being in the pits of my own hell, Jill, I literally felt every, what would people will call negative. I say that with quotation marks because no emotion is negative, but for context, every deep and dark emotion that exists on the scale, grief, guilt, Anger, pride, shame, frustration, helplessness, hopelessness, sorrow, sadness. And it felt like it was a hell that wouldn't stop. I always use this example. I felt like God was holding me about two centimeters away from death. Mm. And while that was happening, so many rancid thoughts again. Oh, shit. They set me up. I'm the only black man in here. So they did this as a, as a way to haze me. Like everything was coming forward. All the judgments, not just of other people, but myself. Mm -hmm. So seeing myself in that way, where I was fully laid out, where I completely came undone was enough for me to know, Oh shit, I'm still alive when all of this has come to light. And there's nowhere else I can go except be here. So that's what started to allow me to at least deepen my own process of self-acceptance. I know, that obviously, there were moments that compounded up to that point, but this is what began to do it for me. Now, the in-betweens is what really mattered. Schooled in my relationship with my wife. That was a massive environment for growth for me in my work. But a lot of it was calling me forward in a way that that I was present to much of the conditioning and programming that I didn't even know I was operating in. Mm -hmm. It was easy for me to be quiet. It was easy for me to be shy. It was easy for me to be reserved. It was easy for me to stand back because I I wasn't confident in my ability. And it's so interesting that I was so passionate about developing a relationship with God, not knowing that that was... My ego playing me because this very, my very nature of not accepting these parts of me was resistance to God. Mm-hmm. So here I am starving for this relationship, not knowing that I'm the one that's You're my, starving yourself. <laughs> I'm starving myself. Yeah. So when there was more self-acceptance, there was an opening for what I felt like this, this deepening, this relationship for, for God, with God. So, yeah. I so get that. 
Like for me, I, I remember like, as I look back, I was chasing. I was trying to find God everywhere. I mean, as a little girl, I was like, will you take me to church? Will you take me to church? I was asking every neighbor. I went to every church, every every religion you can imagine, searching and searching and searching. And it sounds so cliche to say, but cliches are cliche for a reason, you know? I realized that when I came home to myself, I'm like, oh, there you are. <laughs> oh, it just, it's such a beautiful, I was starting to say awakening, but just like remembrance, you know, it's just so beautiful. And, and I've heard that before. And people have heard me say this on this podcast before, but until you experience it, you can't appreciate it. And it's accessible to all of us. And I love that you said that you were able to observe the patterns and all of that that you couldn't see otherwise and and all of the mindset work and and experiential workshops and podcasts and books and all this stuff is great you and I both know and in this audience just you know they're 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 here with you listening and they we talk this is what we talk about this is not this could be a very much a girl boss women's empowerment be you you know and I'd get I'd probably be way more popular But the people who listen to this podcast, they really get what you're saying. Like they're on a journey to really come home to themselves and get that. And we've talked about the fact that so much is hidden if you're just staying with what's familiar and what's safe. And so I would like to ask you, because this is one of the things you're, you're highly trained in and, and, and you help people with so much is the breath. I mean, there are people listening who are fascinated by what you said. And they're like, yeah, and I'm doing, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not going to be doing any ayahuasca. I was going to say that. Yeah. You don't, you don't need to do that in order to, yeah, I have a, I have a specific and special calling with it. I feel that's why I was guided to it. Yeah. And it's wonderful. And so let's really talk about how people can access what you just described simply with the breath, because I shared this with you privately that just breathing scared me. I mean, the, just the idea of letting go, the idea of it wasn't like, oh, I'm a little uncomfortable. I mean, it was terrifying, terrifying. And now it's like, you know, I can't wait till the next time I do that, you know, because I realize now how the gift is letting go. But will you just just educate us on that? We've actually never broken that down in three years of podcasting on the show. We've never really broken down the breath. We've never really gone into breath work. I've just simply told them about my experiences. Yeah. So when it comes to breath, I, I share many different accords so I can speak to all listening that's that's present. So the first thing I'll do is I'll share that breath transcends culture, transcends tradition, transcends history, transcends race, whatever you want to call it, whatever that we feel separates us. The breath transcends all of that. Because it's one of the things that we all have in common if we're alive. And especially if you're listening to this podcast, we all have access to the breath. I love to say that breath is life. Life is breath. In the context of what breath is, you know, the definition, right? Through the Latinized, breath is spiritus. Spirit. When we think of this spirit in the body that exists in this body that enlivens this body, there's very much an aspect of our breath that's connected to it. One of my favorite things about the breath itself, you don't have to (laughs) go to a plant medicine ceremony to breathe. You can breathe right here. 
But the question is, why is it, especially related to your story, and I found this in hundreds of people that I've worked with, that people don't know not just how to breathe, but they are afraid to breathe. Because the breath is one of the things, I won't even say one of the things, one of the only things that brings us back into reality in the present. Why is this important? Well, now we have to look at all the ways we're not present, all the ways that we escape reality. In the context of how we're designed, specifically related to our egos, one of the roles of the ego is to form an identity. But essentially, the ego is made under the premise of self-preservation. So safety and survival are its top priority. Point blank period. It rather see pleasure than it does pain. Now, if we were to compound all the experiences that we had in our upbringing, that may have been overwhelming for us, that may have been unbearable for us to be with or process, we eventually start to build identities or mechanisms that support the ego in avoiding reality. We do these many ways, many different ways, through distracting ourselves, through hiding, through numbing, through repressing and suppressing. All these are ways that we avoid the present moment, that we avoid reality. And because the ego's job is safety and survival, it will make sure to create as many conditions as possible to help us avoid that. When we breathe, like we can right now take a deep breath. You notice how centered and grounded you become. So the breath helps us reconnect with the present and reconnect with reality. And we avoid reality. The question is why? We can park that for a little bit. What the breath has a beautiful way of doing is helping us engage with our body. Our bodies are the only concretized aspect of our being that could be in the present. Again, back to the present moment. The mind, if you notice, it oscillates. It can go into the past. It can go into the future. Sometimes if it wants to be in the present, it could be in the present. But oftentimes it's oscillating between past and future, past and future. But the body is the only thing that could be in the present. Now, let's say, yeah, you had a past memory. Your body can experience that past memory, but it's experiencing it now, right? It's always in the present. So the breath has a special way of reengaging us with our body so we can be present to what's there. So the body can have the permission again to do what it's designed to do, which is organize itself. Our nervous systems are always driven to come back into homeostasis. Always. They want to come back into wholeness. They want to come back into centeredness. They want to come back, back into groundedness. They want to reorganize themselves. Question is, why do we interrupt it? We're going to park that again. The breath is also a beautiful tool to help align and reharmonize the body mind bring us back into coherence within ourselves, right? It helps create clarity when there's a lot of noise. Again, it pulls us out of anywhere else that we are and brings us back into the present moment. Now, I want to get into some science about the breath. 
breath has been around, I mean, since the beginning of time, right? I think more recently, we're starting to see the rise in its popularity by way of people who have taken breath and have created certain styles and breathing patterns, right? In order to achieve a desired result. And if we look at what breath work is, it is just the conscious manipulation of our breath to achieve a specific state, point blank period, right? So we went from breath, now we're going into breath work, okay? We can breathe in any type of pattern. There are infinite amount of patterns out there. And what I love about how I was trained, which I share with you, Jill, is that I was brought up in just having a holistic foundation in just breath. And then you can create whatever pattern once you understand what the breath does. Right? The breath is also considered a remote control for the nervous system. Right? So the breath can literally, it can drive whatever state that you feel. For instance, every inhale is sympathetic. It's pulling in energy. It's pulling that, that sympathetic, that drive. Or in a more healthy way, obviously. And every exhale is parasympathetic. So we see this wave with our nervous system. Sympathetic, parasympathetic. And just a side note, for those who are familiar with the nervous system, sympathetic does not mean bad. And parasympathetic does not mean good. Right? I'm glad you said that. Yeah, it's like comparing apples to oranges. They all have their respective functions. As a matter of fact, if a pit bull is chasing you, you want a you want to be in sympathetic <laughs> to protect yourself. Right. So that's a sign of a healthy nervous system. The challenge becomes is when we are stuck in one and we're not able to turn it off and on. So this is what the power of the breath can do. It can return us back into the driver's seat of our experience. So when we need to go, we can go. When we need to rest, we can rest. I have a question really quick because you brought up a really good point. So what I hear you saying, and I think this is something that a lot of people are not aware of, is that Breath work isn't just giving you an experience and benefit in that session. You're saying that when you do this practice, it's helping you in the future be able to regulate, come back. And that's something I don't think gets talked about enough. Yeah, I, I speak about this all the time. And yes, I, I've said this on record many times. The sessions are great. The big sessions are powerful. You know, they're great for getting a tune-up. They're great for opening. They're great for releasing. They're great for many things. They're great for regulation. But that's a peak session. That's a peak experience. We're not breathing like that all day, every day, 24-7. Where it really counts is how we breathe every day. Mm. That's the real practice. Sure, like the one-off session is great, but what are you doing after the session to support you in being present to the state of your nervous system or being present to the state of your body? That's where it really counts because here's the thing. I have a five-year-old and I'm not perfect. Someday she's going to have an off day and my body can like be activated and what do I have? <sighs> oh, there you go. I can just breathe, right, by tuning in to what's alive, breathe through it, and then I'm back. So it's how we breathe on a daily basis, which I can touch up on a bit later. So when we're breathing in certain patterns, 
what's happening is one, there's, there's a gaseous change in the body that's happening. So there's a chemistry change that's happening in the body where we're taking in more oxygen. And this is particularly during like a bigger breathwork session. We're taking in more oxygen and we're releasing more CO2. What most people don't know is we actually need CO2 for the oxygen to be used in the body. So when we're breathing in more air than normal and releasing more CO2 than normal, what we have is an oxygenated body with not enough CO2 so the body can use the oxygen. What starts to happen is there's parts of the brain that get affected. Prefrontal cortex, particularly in relation to the limbic system, these are parts of the brain that that are in control of our rational thinking, that are in control of processing emotion. These parts of the brain are now, they're not getting now the blood flow they normally get. So these are parts of the brain that normally are in control. When they're not in control, what steps in now? The body. And the body now has the opportunity to free, let go, express what we've been holding. So back to the things that we parked earlier. Okay, we're going to go to that in a little bit. It's kind of what direction am I going to take? Okay, because this is relevant. When we are breathing in or outside of a session, we're stimulating something called the vagus nerve. This is the principal and main component of our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and digest function. So when this is stimulated, obviously this cues the body and alerts it that, hey, we can settle down, we can relax. But 80% of what is comprised of the vagus nerve are something called afferent fibers with an A. And 20% are efferent. Well, the 20% efferent fibers are signals that are sent from the brain to the body. 80% afferent fibers are the signals and information being sent from the body to the brain. So what our biology is even telling us is that our body informs us more than our brain does. Samson, the first thing I thought of when you said that, when you when you were saying that, because right when you went to those, I was like, okay, I know where he's going here. And it made me think of what you were saying earlier, that that we can do all the affirmations in the world, we can do all the mindset work and all that, and it helps only so much. Yep. And I think it's something to be said about even what we are experiencing collectively, right, as a society where a lot of our attention, which served a purpose, right, has been geared towards the mind, thinking, being logical. Again, that has a place. But we experience challenges and suffering when it comes at the expense of the the other side. And this is actually the side that's meant to be the driver. The body is meant to be first because it's first in line. And this is not just something off the cuff that I'm saying. If we look at it logically, if 80% more information is coming in from the body, well, it has more information on our experience. It has more information about our relationship to ourselves and our environment. This is why the intuition is so powerful because it has access to information that our mind cannot even pick up. So the body now has the opportunity to return and organize itself because we're put in a flexible state where the breath is helping us be present. 
we're unparking that conversation as to why we avoid reality. Well, if sensations are too much for us to process, if emotions are too overwhelming for us to be with, if there are cultural and social conditioning that reject our humanity, if we have not been brought up to develop a, a very effective and efficient and full spectrum of emotional vocabulary, if we've learned to avoid and distract and operate solely in survival, these are ways that prompt our system, our body to avoid. So why would I want to be present? Why would I even want to breathe? Because if I breathe, that means I have to be present. And if I'm present, that means I'm going to have to face a lot of this shit that I've stuffed in the closet. And all that stuff is stuck in the body. When we don't give the opportunity for an event to complete itself or an event to resolve itself, it has to go somewhere. So the fact that it doesn't have anywhere to go, we trap it in a tissue. And Samson, really quick, will you just give a quick explanation, an example of it not completing itself? Yes. Okay. So I'll actually give a real life example. Funny enough, it was happened during a breathwork session. So when I was five or six years old, when I lived in Nigeria with my grandmother, I was going to school one day for an event. My brother was supposed to assist me to go to this event. And my brother loved playing table tennis, which in the States is known as ping pong. So I remember this day, he looks at me, he's like, hey, are you able to go to school by yourself? And I'd already been walking to school my own. So it's one of the reasons why I trusted that I could. But in also little brother fashion, because I love my older brother, I said, sure, I can do it. So he goes off to be with his friends and I walk to this road, the road that's literally standing between myself and my school. It's equivalent to maybe a four lane road or highway, side of a highway. And I look left, I look right, look left again, look right. Okay, nothing coming. I start to make my way to the middle of the street and then around the corner comes this motorcycle out of nowhere. And in five or six year old fashion, I froze. I froze and then I get hit by the motorcycle. I go flying, motorcycle goes flying. I'm living on the ground feeling helpless, crying for help, in shock, wondering what happened. And then last thing I see before I pass out, one is the school that I almost got to. So now I'm like, man, I almost made it. And then two is a motorcycle rider literally picking up his bike and what seemed like him leaving. That's what I internalized. So I closed my eyes. And before I closed my eyes, I'm like, he left me. That's what I internalized before I passed out. Fortunately, that wasn't the case after I learned later. So I wake up back home. I'm all bandaged up, right? And dressing and stuff. And then I felt like I healed. We're over that, right? Kind of done. So I thought. Over the years in seminars, this thought has come up, especially around the resentment and anger I had towards my brother for leaving me. Right. So there was a lot of stuff done with that. But then I had a personal breathwork session three or four years ago. And when you do these sessions, you know, I go in, treat it like it's my first time. No expectations. I didn't have any specific intentions that day. 
For me, I just knew I needed to do my own work in that regard and I needed a session. So I already knew what to expect, the sensations, all of it. So I'm going in. And as you know, too, when you're in these, especially when you're deep in the session, there's really no context of time. It's like, I don't know what time it is. So I'm guessing maybe we were half an hour in of breathing. And then my body starts to move in this very interesting way. It's happened before, but not like this. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm not going to control this, even though I can stop it. Let me just go with it. So I keep breathing. Body moves even more. And my body starts to like kind of move. In. I can control it, but uncontrollably because I'm allowing it to happen. And the memory of this accident pops up. Now, this is 25 years later. 25 years later, memory pops up. And then my body contorts to what felt like based on the memory and my body positioning, the position I was in when I was on the ground after I got hit. And all I see is the memory in front of me. And my body tensed up very tight. I kept breathing. And then there was this just deep breath along with like shakes that came. And I just let it go. After receiving counsel and also my own interpretation, what I felt happened was there were still aspects of that accident that had been stored in my body that I didn't have the time. I didn't have the time because I passed out. I didn't have the space to fully process it. All of us as humans, animals have this. That's why animals don't really have trauma because when they experience trauma or an event like that, they innately have to shake it off so they don't carry it with them. Humans, it's different. I didn't have the opportunity to fully process that event because I passed out. So it was stored and it was stored in my body, at least from what I understood from that session for 25 years. Now, looking back, how did it affect my life? It affected me trusting that I can cross metaphorical streets in my life, not be afraid to, to just go in the middle of the road. It affected my ability to trust that I am capable of doing something, right? Or someone trusting in me to do something. And I look back at my life and how many times I hesitated before I did something. Could that have been a contributor to it? Sure. But what I know, that session helped me finally somatically and viscerally resolve the stress, tension, and trauma that was still held in my body from that event. So that's the example that I have, like real life. And it happens in many different ways. For instance, here's another way. Let's say you got into an argument or something intense happened between you and a friend or you and a partner, or even you as a child, where the natural response would be to cry. But based on your own consciousness, your own awareness, based on the environment you were in, it was not safe to cry. It was not the time to cry. So you held your tears in. Well, during something like a breathwork session, it's not foreign for tears to stream through. And those tears, and here's, here's what I, I allow people, or at least I remind people of, this is a body experience that helps unite you with your mind in a way, in a harmonious way. But this is not an experience that you're meant to intellectualize or rationalize or even think about. 
this ha- this is something that has to be felt and processed and then later later maybe come up with a story that serves you or now that you have information and data because that's what emotions provide us this information and data of our experience now you can kind of formulate how that event made sense to you but it's not foreign for tears to stream or also that sometimes you'll never know at anything like i've had friends that have said you know i i I hear what you're saying jill they know my story i had a pretty painful childhood and they're like i I just didn't have that. Like I, and I'm like, you don't need to have a life like I had to have this experience. Cause as you know, right. And I've witnessed this even in a session when I'm doing breath work and I hear other people. Right. And then we talk later. They're like, I don't know what the hell just happened. I don't know where that came from. I have no negative memories in my brain that I can think of from my entire life or my childhood other than little things. And that was deep, deep pain. And so I think it's important to point that out, right? That they may not have an aha and it doesn't matter. That's what I love about it. So I'm like, that's why it's not therapy. You don't have to go back and relive it and talk about it and overanalyze it. Your body just gets rid of it. So here's the thing that's powerful about what you just said. And it's oftentimes why people feel like, well, I don't, I don't have anything like that. And that may be true. But let me give you an example. Let's say you're driving and you're listening to music, right? Doing your thing. And then somebody just doing a hundred caught you off, scares the living shit out of you. Right? It's maybe prompt like frustration or like upset. But let's say because you're, you know, oh, I'm this love and light person that I cannot be upset. You don't allow yourself to just be human. You store that. And you park, you're meeting up with some friends, and then someone kind of speaks to you in a way that is unkind. You're wearing this mask. You're not connected to your voice, so you don't speak up. And then you get home and you have an argument with your partner. Same exact thing. These are big moments. These are little moments that imprint us, right? That imprint us. Imagine, I want you to think of these moments in three stages. They're called sankaras, if you will, in the, in the, in the Buddhist tradition. Was it? Yeah. Is it Buddhist? Yes. Right? Where there's a line drawn in the water. Right? It's not big. Right? The moment another wave comes, the line's gone. That's the person cutting you off. That's you not being able to speak your needs. There's a line in the sand that may last a bit longer. This could be an argument with your partner that's still lingering with you as you go to the shower or as you're making your way to go get some groceries, but eventually you resolve it. The wave comes, hits the shore, and that line's gone. And then, then there are the big moments that we're talking about here, the lines in the rock that live a deep imprint. This is shock trauma. You don't need to have shock trauma, very deep trauma, to experience something that imprints in you. This is why you have someone who feels like they have nothing come into a session and they get out of the way and they realize the body has been holding on to so much. Holding on to that upset you didn't want to express. Holding on to the voice you couldn't, the the words that you couldn't say. All of it has to come forward. 
And the moment we don't allow this energy to flow through this channel, because that's all our body is. Our body is a channel for energy. Emotion is just energy in motion for this energy to move through. Every time we hinder it, we're creating little environments within us where that stagnation of energy that's not moving eventually can translate into bigger problems, stress, health issues, physically, mentally, and emotionally. It can translate into exhaustion. It can translate into anything because simply what we're doing is we're hindering the body's ability to be present so it can free itself for what it's processing. And at the end of the day, for somebody who may be wondering, okay, why is all of this so important? Well, when we feel an emotion, there's information. It's data, right? One of the, one of the emotions, it's, I think it's one of the top unfelt emotions in our society is anger. A lot of judgment around anger and rightfully so because anger can and has caused a lot of destruction and harm. But anger, when we are experiencing anger, what that's telling us is, oh, someone or we have violated boundaries. So if you don't process and feel your anger, then you won't have the information and data to be able to build boundaries in a way that they won't be crossed again. Mm -hmm. Anger is unintegrated power. If you don't feel your anger and process it and express it and be with it in a way, well, now you don't have the information and data and how to integrate that power. Which is going to create more anger. It's going to create more. Anger begets more anger. It's so interesting. When I was first asked to do an anger burn, I was like, yeah, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that. Most people feel they don't have anger. I'm not an angry person. Yeah. And then when I was actually led in a group anger burn exercise, I was like, this is so fucking stupid. Like, so weird. I'm acting. I'm just going to act. <laughs> and what's so funny, Samson, is that I'm not like a really soft person who I'm powerful and I'm bold. And ask my kids, like I had anger issues when they were growing up, a lot of anger issues. And I just leaked anger all the time onto them. So for me to say just one year ago, one year ago, I, I've done a lot of work. I'm just telling you, I, I'm not angry anymore. There's nothing I'm angry about. I've emptied it all out. So I'm like, well, I'm going to at least be a good student and do it. And you know how this is going to end. I mean, 10 minutes in, I was a freaking maniac. I was like punching things and, you know, safely and getting, I had so much rage and anger deep in me that it was, I don't want to say scary, but it was shocking to me. I didn't know where it was coming from. And it, uh, most women are like that, right? Well, most humans are like that, especially women, because yeah, in our society, a woman that's angry is a no-no. A woman that's experiencing anger is looked down upon, is judged heavily because women aren't supposed to experience anger. That's a whole different conversation. Yeah. But the thing is, is back to what I was saying about is these little micro moments that were imprinted. It's these little things that build up to be the big things when we actually give them space to be expressed. But something else that you said that brought up another thought. And I don't know why I said this in the past, but it was something that just came through as a stream of consciousness. Where what I've noticed is the reason we may resist feeling emotions, for instance, like anger. I'm not, I don't have any anger. I don't have any sadness is because we fear when we feel it, 
then we are it. There's a very important distinction to be had here. We are not our emotions. Just like water, and it's so interesting that emotions are correlated to the element of water, emotions are meant to move like an experience. We don't have emotions. We're not emotions. We experience them. And when we can truly hold this idea and live it, then what we become is a true conduit for energy to move. And we won't, it's not going to be perfect, but we won't hold on to moments as much as we have been because we have now built the capacity to know that it's okay to be human, to allow this energy to move through us. We become better surfers of the waves of our humanity. Mm, That's so good, Samson. So good. Right? And the only way is we got to learn how to swim. We've known how to swim. It was just taken away or it wasn't taught to us. Uh, I'll say that. So there's a difference between knowing we are experiencing an emotion versus thinking that we are an emotion. And all of this, again, it's back to the threat to the very thing that wants to preserve our life, our ego. The ego has to hold up this identity that it will resist feeling an emotion because it's like, oh shit, if I cry, that means blank. Or if I, if I allow myself to experience this anger or this upset, then that means blank. It doesn't mean anything. It just means you have anger to process. And after you process it, then you can get to the meaning. That's another thing. This is one, one of the biggest lessons that I've learned. What has helped me integrate a lot of this is that, especially when it comes to the spiritual concepts or a lesson from a very, very, very deep event that happened in my life, the old me would immediately want to get to the reason, want to get to the lesson. Ah, why? what's the good in this for me? That's right. By all means, that is perfect. And that's valid. But if I do that, skipping over what's needed, which is for me to actually live out the experience fully, then I'm not getting no lesson. The lesson is in the feeling, processing, being with, and building a relationship with the emotion and sensations and all of the facets and faces of that event. And once I clear that, because if I don't feel it, I am now left with an emotional charge. Once I clear the charge, now I'm left with this gift. Oh, that's why this happened. That's why this happened for me. So for those listening, you could be in an event right now and your mind, as it is built to do, is rationalizing, intellectualizing, thinking about feeling. But you can't think about your feelings. You can't think your emotions. Once you allow yourself to feel them, then you may, just may, get to what you need on the other side. Mm-hmm. Amen. So beautiful. There's a lot. No, it was amazing. Thank you so much. I'm so glad. I'm so glad, so glad we spent the last half talking about the breath. I know you're so passionate about it, but thank you for breaking that down because... You know, you know this. I'm going to speak to this for a second before we close that. So I can't, 
tap into every person listening to the show. I don't know, but, but there's a knowing in me that I have a feeling about who's listening to the show. So we have listeners in 120 countries. I'm very proud of that. Lots of women all over the world listening. And you know that like attracts like. I mean, we're all probably pretty similar, probably vibing pretty similarly. Different parts of our journey, but still, right? And I believe that most of our listeners feel the way I feel, which is something that you started to say earlier, which is there is a lot said a lot of terms, a lot of lingo. I call it lingo. I'm older than you, but like, like terms and lingo about, I used to call it like, I used to be a very religious Christian and I called it Christianese. And I never felt like I fit in because I didn't speak Christianese. And I wasn't going to fake it because I'm not a faker. I'm not going to say those words because they don't fit me. And in the coaching community, in the spiritual community, in the personal development community, there are a lot of people that don't feel like they fit because they don't speak that language. Yeah. And you took it so much deeper than that without using the the terminology and the jargon and, you know, because that's what welcomes people in. And I know that people listening are like, okay, now I was able to understand because I wasn't sort of shut out by the, how many breathwork sessions have you done and how many, you know, you get it. So I don't know, but I know that people listening really appreciated the way you just explained that. And I, my favorite, my favorite thing you said probably is about riding your humanity, surfing the waves of your humanity. It was beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jill. The last thing that popped up as you were speaking, I feel it's relevant to as to why, you know, being able to use your breath is a powerful tool. I think this could be a benefit to your listeners, especially as women. Right? I feel women have a closer connection with this aspect of themselves, whereas men, just because of how we're biologically designed, we'd have to just work a little bit extra to get there. Just like you may have to work a little bit extra to, you know, practice something that, you know, we're adept in. But this is the, this is our intuition. We talk about the breath and returning to the body. This is also the ability to return to our intuition, this inner voice, to get out of the head and get into the heart, where many ancient traditions consider the seat of the soul. And it's part of why I do the work I do. Ever since I was a kid, for me, like it, it shifted from a purpose to help people remember their power, then to know the truth of who they are, that then essentially it's all centered around people connecting with themselves. What I have learned is that truly, and this is not a belief anymore, this is a knowing the kingdom of heaven, the voice of God exists within us. And if we keep living externally and employing our mind as the CEO and being deceived by our eyesight, then we're missing or we're missing out on the true nature of who we are that actually informs and affects our external reality. So the breath is also a powerful tool to go within, which I think is happening on a massive scale right now because we, we've just lived thousands and thousands of years of externalizing everything. What's on the outside, which we can say for a different conversation is an aspect of the masculine energy and function, right? Socially, we've been hyper masculinized, hyper. Meaning that comes at a cost of suppressing the feminine nature, which is not limited to gender, 
but feminine nature and energy and function that exists within all of us. When I talk about the feminine nature and energy, I'm talking about the aspect of going into the darkness. Darkness is feminine. Darkness is a negative, y'all. Because <laughs> sometimes people hear that and it's like, oh, is that bad? No, darkness is not negative. This is just something that it's unconscious. It's where there's no light, right? By the way, we were in darkness in our mother's womb. So we're developed in darkness. Darkness is feminine. Yin is feminine. The body is feminine. Emotions are feminine. Reflection, introspection is feminine. Creativity, imagination is feminine. The inner world is feminine. Back to the point that I alluded to earlier, we flipped it. We're trying to affect the outside world with the outside world when we know. This is in all spiritual traditions. Before anything becomes physical, it has to be, it has to exist in the non-physical. It's the inner that affects the outer. So something like the breath, if you can use it so powerfully to bring you back within yourself so you can be in connection and in communion with this voice, this in- intuition that knows way more than the mind can fathom, then you'll be back on the path. Mm-hmm. When I say back on the path, we all have our individual paths that we've been called to walk. And the challenges and the suffering that we experience is when we're off the path, but it's not good or it's not right. It's not wrong. All that is to bring us back to the path. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, when you fall off, something's in your life is going to try to invite you back. And until you listen, it's going to keep inviting you. But this is all back to the path. And only us, each and every single one of you listening to this, you know what that is. But you get to go inside. You get to listen to that voice. And once you begin listening and it knows that you're listening, it's going to start speaking loudly. And then now you're not outsourcing your power to outside of you or anybody. You're now in communion and connection with the power that has always existed within you. So I wanted to share that. Mm, So beautiful. And once you hear that voice, you won't listen to anything else. Nope. Mm, Thank you so much, Samson. Thank you so much, Jill. We finally made it happen. I know, we did. We did. I hope I get to meet in person sometime. It'll happen. Thank you so much, Samson. Beautiful, generous of you. Appreciate you so much. And is Instagram the way people can find you? Because I know they'd like to. Yes, that, that's the perfect way right now as I'm redoing and redesigning my sites. All right, they will find you there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. 